Aren't you thankful that we have a good, good Father? I love coming here to Wayside and being led in worship. Do you? Let's thank our worship team. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it says up on the screen, I'm Pastor Walt McCord, but I'm not a a full-time pastor here, although I have been in pastoral ministry for too long, too long, 30-some years, wow. Um, I have the joy here at Wayside of being one of your elders, and I get to pray for you every week. I also get the joy of teaching over in the Genesis class at 11 a.m. every morning. Oh my gosh, I'm late to teach. Oh, no, no, no. I like that. You have a loud laugh. We'll work on that. All right. So I love teaching over in the Genesis class, uh, but really my greatest claim to fame at Wayside is I am married to this lovely young lady, not Roger, the guy, the gal, Brenda, who is the director of women's ministry here at Wayside. Uh, We've been here two and a half years. We're able to return back to Texas where we love, but for a period of 14 years, uh, Brenda and I were exiled uh, 20 hours drive north of here in Chicago, Illinois. You might have heard of that little town. And while we were there, I had the joy of teaching uh, Bible exposition Old Testament at Moody Theological Seminary in downtown Chicago. And I taught a number of different classes, but my favorite class, I think, to teach was a class called Old Testament Literature and Themes. Um, I love to teach it, especially because um, I actually introduced the class. They were changing curriculum, and it was kind of like an Old Testament survey, but actually focused on the four main kinds of Old Testament literature, narrative, poetry, wisdom literature, and then prophecy, which is kind of my bag from uh, my seminary training. And then we also went into some great literary themes, the themes of king, God is king and Christ is king, the uh, the theme of coming kingdom and covenant, when God makes an arrangement with us, and when God decides to condescend and say, I'll make a deal with you. You place your faith in me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. What a wonderful image that is. Well, teaching there in this Old Testament literature and themes, the first class was always the first part of class was you explain the syllabi. This is a contract between the student and me. Uh, This is what you need to do. This is what I will do. And this is how you can achieve an A, a B, a C, and um, et cetera. So we would take that. And then at the end of that class, we always had a break. We had a three-hour block of classes. I'm used to teaching in three-hour segments. And so we will take a break an hour and a half into this. No, just, I know the clock's running. But we would take a break. But just before that break, I would say, Jesus taught using various illustrations. God taught us in the Old Testament and New Testament. And we use illustrations. And I want to do one of those right now. Leave all your things here and come and follow me. And so I would then walk to the door and the class would be staring at me like, no, wait, does he really want us to leave our stuff? And we have computers and we have things that are important. I said, don't worry, everything will be protected leave everything and come and follow me. And because I was a professor and I had the power of the grade over him, a few of them would start, I said, come on. And we would walk out of the classroom and we'd cross the quad. We'd go into this area called the commons where they sold, you know, little food and other items that would keep students through the night. And we would go over there and I would put, if we had a class of 35, I would put 35 $1 bills down on one of the tables in the commons. And I would say, each one of you come and take a dollar bill and go in and buy anything you want. Do anything you want with it. And so some of the students would like come up and, okay, I'm in on this. And some of the students were like, I don't know if this is... And they would leave it. And always I had a few that were left. And then we would go back, and we would go into the classroom, and we would sit down, and they're all wondering, 
what was that all about? And then I would take one student. It was always someone from the front row, someone that looked like they were anxious to learn, someone like Kim. And I would ask them, would you come over here? Would you come up here? And I would very ceremoniously take out of my wallet, not a $1 bill, but a what? A $10 bill. And I would say, go to the commons and buy whatever you want. Go ahead. Now, a couple of things happened from that illustration. One is more people wanted to sit in the front row from then on in class. <laughs> from that class on, everyone, the front row was always full. But there was, there was more to the lesson. So I'd say, okay, we're going to divide the class in half. This half of the class, I want you to just, the illustration you just saw, how is Prof McCord sort of like Jesus? Okay? And then this half of the class has the easy job. You can decide how Prof McCord is in no way like Jesus. And break up into groups of five and spend the next five minutes trying to come up with what were some of the teaching illustrations from that little example of what we just did. And again, number one, the front row was never empty again. Number two, it generated a lot of great discussion. Like a free gift offered and some people took it and some people didn't. Like once you received that gift, what did you do with it? Did you go and spend it all or did some people just say, you know, I'm going to put this in my pocket and add it to something and get something on the way home? But then what about giving more to someone? They didn't do any. Is that fair? Someone only get one and she got ten? What is that all about? Does God treat us that way? And so it generated a lot of discussion. So the front row was always full. There's a lot of discussion generated for that class. But the third thing and most importantly is it started the class thinking What's going to happen the next time we come to class? It was expectancy. What's going on here? How is this guy going to teach? We've never been taught like that. And that's the kicking point off of the passage we're about to look at today. Jesus taught in various ways, but he always taught in ways that wanted to get the people's attention. Right now, the passage we're starting with In Luke chapter 4, starts Jesus' great Galilean teaching ministry. And from Luke 4 to about Luke 9, Jesus is going to teach the people. And there's some very important things he wants these people to get. This sets down the paradigm for what Jesus is going to do over the next three years. But I'd like us this morning to study this in a way Jesus would have taught it. So if you're able, would you put your Bibles down and not look at them? If you look on a phone for your Bible, would you put that away for this moment? And you do what Jesus would have done when he asked you for the next minute and 45 seconds, would you stand expectantly to hear a reading of God's word? Would you stand with me? Luke 4, 14 to 32. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, And news about him spread through all the surrounding districts. He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book and he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are drowned trodden and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. 
And he closed the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him and began to say to him, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And, and they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote the proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever you have heard was done at Capernaum. Do that here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the synagogue was filled with rage as they heard these things. And they rose up and they cast him out of the city and led him up to the bow of the hill, which their city had been built on in order to throw him down off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. And he came down to Capernaum, to a city in Galilee, And he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. May I got blessings of God be added to the reading of his word, and now would we sit for the teaching about his word. And that's what they would have done in a synagogue at the time of Jesus. There at the synagogue, a scroll would have been kept in a scroll box and would have been rolled out and would have been given to the rabbi. In this case, Jesus was probably considered an itinerant rabbi because he was going from synagogue to synagogue in this region. And Jesus would have picked up the scroll, he would have gone to a place, he would have read it, and then after reading it, he would have then had the people sit, and he said, now let me tell you what that means. Let me tell you how you're to understand that. And the people all would sit there and they'd say, okay, teach us, Jesus, teach us. And from chapter 4 to chapter 9, we're going to have Jesus teaching the people in various ways. But I think this morning, as we get started on the teaching section of Jesus' ministry in Luke's gospel, we need to be aware that there's four key items that we need to know. And again, even up on the screen, this is a picture of a modern, or ancient synagogue in Chorazim. Chorazim is in northern Israel in the region of Galilee. We know Jesus was in this synagogue, and the chair on the left with the pastor seated on the right, that's the seat of Moses. That's where Jesus would have sat in the very front of the synagogue to teach all the people. And we know that Jesus was in this synagogue because Matthew 11, Matthew tells us that Jesus did most of his miracles in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. So this synagogue and the original seat there that's in the Israeli museum, this is an exact replica, this synagogue would have seen most of Jesus' miracles done in these three different synagogues. And Jesus would have sat there and taught. As we go forward, I I think there are just, I said, four key items that we want to see as Jesus initiates his ministry. And whenever you come to one of these teaching sections, you should start by asking this. Where did Jesus teach this? What is the setting? What's going on here? Well, the text goes on and it makes this very clear. First of all, it says in verse 14, And Jesus returned to Galilee, and the power of the Spirit news of him was spreading through the surrounding districts, 
And he began teaching in their synagogues. Jesus is teaching in synagogues, both in Galilee, and that's that central region. You see it all, Galilee, but also in the surrounding districts. And this should pique our curiosity because as a good Jew, you would say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. It's fine if Jesus is teaching in Galilee. But look to the south. Do you see what district is to the south of Galilee? That's Samaria. That's Samaria. That's a region of people that were considered partly Jewish but partly pagan. Because when the Assyrians had come in and defeated the Jewish nation of Israel, the ten tribes in the north, they'd taken some of the Jews away, and their way of dealing with conquered peoples was to make them intermingle and intermix. And so those Samaritans by this time were considered not really Jewish and not really pagan. They had a separate Pentateuch. They had a separate Bible called the Samaritan Pentateuch. They worshipped on a different hill. Good Jews went down to Mount Zion and to the Temple Mount. The Samaritans went up to Mount Gerizim to worship there. And you remember Jesus even goes there and he meets a woman at a well. And when he meets that woman, he starts a dialogue and she says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What are you, a Jew, doing speaking to me, a Samaritan? Don't you know that Jews and Samaritans have no interaction? Jesus is going to go down there or he's going to go over to the region of the Decapolis. And over in the region of Decapolis, he's going to meet a man who has not only one demon, but he has a legion of demons in him. And Jesus is going to say to those legion of demons, you need to flee this man and you need to go and be in a herd of pigs. And at this point, you all should not laugh, but you should say, oy vey. Could you say that with me? Oh no, what are pigs, which are non-kosher, doing in a region that's supposed to be following the dietary law? And so Jesus not only throws them in, and we remember that miracle, that's the miracle of the deviled ham, right? And so Jesus does that, or some people call it the miracle of the swine dive as they all go running into the ocean. But by the way, there's more, but I'll stop myself. What is Jesus doing over there with pigs? Or up in Galanitis, there's Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus is going to go up there with his disciples. And the Caesarea Philippi is known because it has one of the largest temples to Pan, a pagan Greek god in the whole world at that time. It's huge. And Jesus goes up there to ask his disciples, who do men say that I am? They give answers. Then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter steps up to bat and says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. When it says that Jesus is going around to the surrounding districts, this is not insignificant. Jesus' ministry won't just be to the good Jews alone. Something is fixing to change. But not only that, something else is going to happen. Not only did he teach in Galilee the surrounding districts, he taught in their synagogues, verse 15. He would go into these synagogues to teach and he would follow the normal practice. He would go in there and he would start by reading the scriptures and then be explaining them. The word synagogue, and I think this is our first example of this in the Luke's gospel, literally means house of assembly. Or in Hebrew, it would be Beit Knesset. It was sort of like a community center during the week. They could have classes there. They could meet for civil functions. But when it came to Friday night, as soon as it became dark, the Jewish people were expected to go there and start the Sabbath or the Shabbat. And the Sabbath was to involve at least three key things. Number one, it was to involve the time of rest. You were refraining from working. Number two, it was to involve a time of worship. When we would gather together, 
We wanted to think outside of just our needs and who we are. We wanted to be reminded of God and who he is. And we wanted to focus on him. We wanted to focus on aspects like he's a good, good father. No matter what we think or what experiences we had with the father, that's who he is. And we're loved by him. In Christ, that's who we are. That was part of worship. But then there was one more part. Not only were we to have rest, not only were we to have worship, we were to have family. We were to build relationships with our family and spend time with them and take walks with them and enjoy a good gift from God. See, the Sabbath isn't for God. The Sabbath is for us. We need it. We need to take time out to remember that. And then lastly, where did Jesus teach? It continues on, verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood to read. Where Jesus is going to teach is where Jesus normally is on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, he's in synagogue. Now, as a rabbi, he's now gone to other synagogues in the region. But his custom growing up is if it's Friday night, I'm in synagogue. Kind of a great illustration about that as was his custom. It's a good question to ask you and me right now. Is it our regular custom Then it becomes time for corporate worship? Because that is what this passage is talking about. Are we here together? And I get it, there's times you're sick and there's times we're traveling, but are we regularly, customarily coming together for the teaching of God's word? Well, first of all, look at the setting. Where is Jesus? Second of all, I want you to look at how did Jesus teach? And it's interesting because we've already seen, number one, he taught with the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Going back to verse 1 of this chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. He returned from the Jordan and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness. Jesus is a spiritual teacher. Jesus is full of the Spirit and he's being guided by the Spirit when he comes before the people and he gets ready for corporate worship. And as it was then, that needs to be true today. It's not just good enough to have people come up here and to have them have good education, which we want, and to have them have an interesting message, which we would desire. But even more than that, it needs to be a message empowered by the Spirit of God. And over the last two and a half years as I've sat here, I've been blessed by our spiritual teaching here. Have you? I think we have unbelievable and excellent teaching. By the way, I've just repeated a bad phrase, and I was called on it by Um, a a person this morning. Do you know what I said? What kind of teaching we have? We have unbelievable. Let me change that. We have very believable teaching because it comes from God's word and it's blessed by the power of the spirit and it's honoring to him. Jesus also taught with wisdom and stature. Two interesting words. Uh, I love Luke 2.52, and Jesus increased in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and man. Wisdom comes from the Hebrew chukmah. And this idea of wisdom is God tells us how the world operates, and then we align ourselves with that. We're digging into God's word and and saying, God, how do you operate? And what, what does this look like? If I'm to please you, how should I walk as a wise man? If I'm to please you, how should I do work with money as a wise woman? What does smart living look like? That's wisdom. And stature can mean he just grew. 
He started off as a baby and he grew to a full-grown man. But it also looks at the standing. Yes, and, and so infants were considered less significant. And some, he's growing in significance. He's growing in wisdom. He's growing in his reputation around there. Thirdly, Jesus taught with amazing understanding. I love this passage that we studied a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about Jesus' understanding. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Jesus has amazing understanding as he's undergoing a theological quiz and he's being asked questions and then he gives answers. Do you remember where that passage is from and what the context of that was in Luke 2, 47? He's 12 years old, teens, just about there, and he goes down to Jerusalem with his parents and it says, as was their custom, they're righteous Jews and they regularly go down there because that's what is expected of them. And he goes to the temple and he starts entering into theological dialogue with the teachers of the temple. This is like a 12-year-old without any formal training heading up to Dallas Theological Seminary and amazing the profs at his understanding. And you say, how can this be? He has no formal teaching, but if you've been following along through our Luke series, he has amazing godly examples. Here's the amazing example of Mary, his mother, who after she interacts and is submitted to to the will of the Lord, she sings out a song of praise and it's chock full of scripture. Mary, Jesus' mother, knew the word of God and I have to believe taught it intently to Jesus. He grew up in it in his home. He saw it everywhere he went. His cousin's family, Zacharias and Elizabeth, they were filled with scripture. He grew up in a scripture-packed home and family. And an application question to you and I is, would the same thing be said about your home? Parents, would the same thing be said about my home, grandparents, that we're raising our kids around the teaching of God's word and they're hearing it consistently and we value it and we prioritize it? Would they say the same things? And then lastly, Jesus grew up, and as he taught, he taught with authority. And in verse 32, closing this passage, they're amazed at his teaching for his message as one with authority. You know, at that time, the rabbis, to get their authority, would quote previous rabbis who had authority. And they would say, Rabbi Hillel said this, and then Rabbi Gamaliel said this about Hillel, and I say this. And they would build their authority on the authority of others. Jesus doesn't do that. He even goes against that and says, you've heard it said, but now I say. When Jesus taught, he didn't teach with the authority of rabbis. He taught with God's authority. And hopefully when we come together for the teaching of God's word, we come under the authority of God's word and his teaching. Well, third, not only did we see where Jesus taught and how did he teach, we need to see what did Jesus teach. And here's where it gets real interesting. In this passage, starting with verse 17, it says Jesus is going to teach from the prophets. He opens up the scroll, Isaiah, and he said, let's talk about Isaiah. And he reads a messianic prophecy. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden and to proclaim the favorable 
year of the Lord. This is an amazing prophecy. And actually he's saying this is fulfilled today in your hearing. And this is a prophecy from Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2a, just the first part of verse 2. And when Jesus goes there, all the people hearing this would have said, oh my gosh, this is such great news. This is a messianic prophecy. If Jesus is saying this is going to be fulfilled, it is included in there unbelievable prophecies that include everlasting pride of God. From now on, you will be my everlasting pride. It will be everlasting victory and peace. There will never again be violence within the land of Israel. Can you imagine if that were to happen today? If you could say, from now on, there's never going to be violence in the land of Israel. From now on, we're going to have peace here. This is a messianic prophecy of when Jesus comes to rule and reign on earth, and he sets all things right. He fixes all wrongs. He makes all people that love God to be secure and at peace and at rest and in great relationship with him. And yet, if you know this prophecy, you know that Jesus interrupted it right in the middle of that passage. It would be like me speaking a poem to you and stopping it prematurely. Let me just see if you, if you get this. Here's a poem. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that... Well, wait a minute. What is grace all about? And what are you teaching us? Is this grace in general? And it's amazing Well, the person that wrote the poem says that grace is realized when it's applied to your life. It's amazing. It's a sweet sound, right? That saved a wretch like me. It's it's applied to my life. It's a sweet sound because I heard it and I applied it. I once was lost, but now I'm... I was blind, but now I can spiritually... Jesus interrupts the prophecy... And in so doing, the readers must have been just like us. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's the second part of the verse? Let me read the second part of the verse. Jesus says, God has sent me to preach this message, verse 19, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God. Jesus interrupts this prophetic teaching because what he's trying to get their attention and saying, hey, listen, right now I'm talking with you all about grace that can save a wretch like, but you know what? Don't forget that someday God the judge is going to come and all those who have tasted of his goodness and all those who have placed their faith in him and all those who have probably the same, he's my Lord and Savior. It's going to be the best day ever. But for those of you who are rebelling against the teaching of God's word, For those of you whose heart are hardened and you're turning away from God, know this, judgment will come on that same day of blessing. Because when the king comes, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, some in great joy because their savior is here and some is in utter defeat because the king has come and they were rebelling against him. Well, first of all, he has... Isaiah 61 in mind. Continuing on, it's interesting. One group hears this in verse 20. And as he began to say, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they were all speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Everyone liked the first part of Jesus' message. If he had ended here, he would have got an ovation. 
But Jesus doesn't end here just as that prophecy from Isaiah 61 doesn't end just with blessing. Jesus continues on with challenging words. Did you hear them when we read them together? And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in the days of Elijah. But Jesus didn't come to them or Elijah didn't come to them and and take care of them. He went to a widow up in Phoenicia. And there were many lepers. And Elisha didn't come to them. But he went to Naaman, a Syrian leper. And Jesus reminds him. He says, you're saying physician, heal yourself. What we did in Capernaum, what you did in Capernaum, would you come and now do here? Those challenging words, even as you see them, are illustrated in a place. He's challenged because they are saying, why aren't you doing the same kinds of things in Capernaum that you're doing here? Capernaum is really only a day's journey from Nazareth. It's not that far away. But evidently already, even though Luke doesn't record it, already Luke doesn't record it, but Jesus has gone to Capernaum and he's done some miracles. He's done some amazing things there. And the people of his hometown are saying, Jesus, wait, you were a good physician there. You did miracles. You did healings there. Do them here. Physician, not only out there, outside of town, do them here. And Jesus says, no, you you don't understand. A prophet's not welcome in his hometown. And then he says, oh, by the way, God's grace extends to Gentiles. Just like I've been teaching in the surrounding districts, that's a good thing. And at this point, we need to come to our last point which is, so what's all this mean to those of us who hear? When Jesus is teaching the word, as we look and we say, what is the setting? Where is this taking place? And how did Jesus teach? What is he teaching? Is he using parables? What is he doing here? And then what specifically did Jesus teach? He taught the prophets. Jesus taught the people important lessons that God wasn't just only going to be primarily working with Israel. He's now going to expand his ministry. Finally, we see the response of the people. How did the people respond? Well, the people out there, the people in the surrounding districts, were amazed and they loved his gracious words. There was acceptance out there. Come, bring your ministry here. We can't wait to hear more. But did you see what happened in Jesus' hometown? In Jesus' hometown, something very different. When Jesus said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Some of the people said, we love it. Teach us more. You know, it's an interesting phrase, fulfilled in your hearing. The Greek word is plerao. And literally, it means something that's happened in the Old Testament has now been fulfilled, and you've just seen it happen. You just saw scripture happen. By the way, I love this phrase, and I, whenever I hear this, I think of my second trip to Israel. I've, I've had the joy of helping lead fi- 15 25 different trips to Israel. We go over there. We have exciting times. We, God always visits us in very special ways as we go there. But on our second trip to Israel, we went and stayed up at a place called Ariel. And we went into the hotel, and there was a hotel manager there. His name was Moses. And Moses came out, and we had this introduction. Here's where the pool. Here's where this. Here's where that. And he said, uh, but um, as we end this time, your luggage has been carried to your room and you can go up there. But I want to ask you and invite you, would you like to today to fulfill Old Testament prophecy? Would you like today to fulfill Old Testament prophecy? And I remember thinking, 
yeah, I'm in, I'm in. Like, okay, what's he going to do now? And so he took us out back by the pool to the right of the pool. There was a little hillside. And he took us up on the hillside and he said, I want to read to you from the Bible. And he started with Jeremiah eight thirteen, And I want to read this. I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree. Their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. And he says, that's true because God took us into captivity, first with the Assyrians, then with the Babylonians, then with the Romans for years, for almost a thousands and thousands of years, 2,000 years, we could not come back. And if we came back, we came back under the penalty of death. But God has done something different. Because Jeremiah later in the chapter goes on and he's going to explain in chapter 31, the chapter which contains the new covenant, this. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel again, and they will be my people. Again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria, and farmers will plant them and enjoy their fruit. And Moses said, do you see this hill behind us? This is a hill of Samaria. And God said that when we return to the land, part of his prophecy is that we would plant vineyards. And you today can fulfill prophecy by planting a vine here on, on the hills of Samaria. And for only $20, take this shovel. And I realized on that moment, I was not going to fulfill prophecy on the hills of Samaria. But at the same time, as we look at this acceptance and this excitement in the fulfillment of prophecy, there's a different group. And the different group at that time takes Jesus out to the brow of the hill which this photo is, they're in Nazareth, and they prepare to throw him off. And they went and they rose and they cast Jesus out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, Jesus went his way and he came down to Capernaum. You know, I find it interesting that these people who had grown up and seen him, these people that had been with Jesus at this point say, we don't like the second part of the message and we don't like it so much that we're ready to kill him. <laughs> Pretty strong response to a message. One, I hope I don't get today, right? But as you look at that, I want to see, remind you of something. Up to this point in Luke's gospel, he's mentioned Nazareth five times. Five times. First, he's referred to Luke 1.26, where Gabriel comes to Mary. Second, Joseph leaves Nazareth and travels to Bethlehem to fulfill the scripture from Micah that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Third, in Luke 3, in 2.39, where after their time in Bethlehem and then down in Egypt, Mary and Joseph return here. Fourth, when Jesus, at 12 years old, goes down to the temple and amazes him, they go back to Nazareth, and he's been there, growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man for all that time. From 12 years on now to approximately 30 years old, he's been in Nazareth and they've watched him and they've seen him. They've seen him grow and they know it's family. And these people say, yeah, we've come and we've heard the message, but we don't like the message. And they turn their back on Jesus and Jesus turns his back on them and he never returns to Nazareth to do any more ministry. And the admonition to us is, how we come before the teaching of the word of God is very important. It's very important. You know, in conclusion, I have three application questions I want to ask you. Question number one is this. What is your custom relative to regularly learning the word of God? 
Is it hit and miss? If you miss a week of good teaching, are you okay? But if you miss a second week or a third week, and by the way, kind of I'm preaching to the choir, thank you for being here. We at Wayside are glad you are here. Can I say that again? Because most of you are like, uh, we at Wayside, it would work if you'd like smile a little bit right now and I can keep going. We at Wayside are glad you're here. We're glad you're here under some solid teaching. For 15 years, 14 years, I taught communication of biblical truth at Dallas Theological Seminary. And I might not be the best at that, but I'm a good grader at that. And Sunday after Sunday, I sit in this sanctuary and I am thrilled with the teaching we get. Amen? So part of the question is, are you regularly coming under that teaching? This speaks to frequency and priority. Hey, and if you can't get here and if you're not of it, listen to it online. That, that's okay. We, we understand there's times you're sick, but you need fed sometime during the week. And again, we want you to have your own Bible study. We want you to read God's word, but we also want you to be corporately with the people and responding appropriately. That's what this passage is all about. Secondly, what's your normal response to the teaching of God's word? This is, this is really asking the question of teachability. Are you teachable? Do you come here saying, I'm coming today and I want to be taught God's word. I'm expecting to be taught God's word today. I'm really demanding it. I want God's word. I would suggest make two suggestions in application here. Number one, as you get ready to come to church, would you consider every Sunday praying, God, would you teach me something today? I'm expecting you to teach. I'm coming here. Would you soften my heart? Would you prepare my ears to hear? Lord, will I be dialed into what you want me to listen to today? And then secondly, not just about as you pray, as you come to church, would you be aware of reducing distractions? And can I show you my greatest distraction almost every Sunday as I sit in this church? This is called a cellular telephone. Do you all know what that is? Y'all know that, right? And if I'm not careful, almost every Sunday, by right now I have a message. And I'm, I'm, um, I have messages and there's things to do and I can be busy all the time. And you know one of the ways that I prioritize the teaching of God's word and I say, God, I want you to teach me today. It's by turning that thing off and it's by saying, God, I can spend these next 40 minutes focused on you worshiping you and asking you to teach me. Well, two of them, not only do we need to prioritize this, this should be our habit. Jesus said it was his custom. He was there when the synagogue was open. We're regularly here. It should be an aspect of us wanting to be teachable. Lastly, I want to make a suggestion. If we really want to be teachable and if we really want to have the right attitude when we come to this, we need to be more like Snickers. Now, on your left, that is Snickers. She's our two-year-old lab puppy. I was always taught by our preaching class that you always want to have a memorable last illustration. Um, So you should remember this. Snickers is our best. We've had three labs. She's our best lab ever. She's absolutely delightful. Snickers loves to get up in the morning. She waits quietly. Sometimes if we sleep in on a Saturday, she even still quietly waits. She's just such a good dog. She loves to go on a walk. Gets up, goes on a walk. She, She can't wait for that. She loves it, right? But there's one aspect of Snickers where all of a sudden we see all that she really is as a puppy. 
It's when it comes mealtime. When it comes mealtime, and especially it starts when we get the bowl out of the backyard. And when we get the bowl out of the backyard, Snickers starts to get excited. And she doesn't just wag her tail. She wags her whole body. She's so... And then we go into the garage and we fill up two scoops, scoop one, scoop two. Snickers is right there. Two scoops, two scoops. You know, and then we go over, we put a little water in it, we set it on the counter. Snickers is right there watching the counter expectantly, can't wait. She knows what's next. And we leave it on the counter to soak a little bit and, and to get Snickers a little more excited. And then as we pick that bowl up off the counter, Snickers leaps. And she doesn't just leap like, oh, I'm going to get food. She leaps. And then when we open the door to the backyard, she jumps out four, sometimes five feet and higher. She is so excited to be fed. Every morning, Every night, 365 days of the year, Snickers is excited to be fed food. And I would suggest if we really want to get out of the word of God, what God wants us to get out, we should sort of be like Snickers. I don't need you to be jumping as you come in the door there. But that longing to hear from God's word and be fed. Would you bow your heads and close with me? So, Father God, I ask that we would regularly be hearing the word of God, that we would come under the teaching and we would have longing and hearts that want to be taught. And, Lord, when I stop my hurried life long enough to hear the word of God, I want to long to hear that message from the Lord that my soul would be fed and I would receive the spiritual nourishment that you want to give me. So, Father, in your kindness, would you make of us students of the word of God, not hearers only, but doers, that delve deeply into it, that it changes our soul. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.